Hi, I'm Rochelle Jackson. Welcome to The Crime Couch. I'm an investigative journalist and true crime author, and I know who's who in the zoo, the crims, the cops, and the interesting individuals in between. So get comfy and join me each week on The Crime Couch for a rollicking, intriguing tale. It'll be one heck of a journey. Vicky Petratus is a true crime author with some 17 titles to her name. She's a best-selling author, teacher and podcaster. Vicky's written books about Frankston murderer Paul Denyer, former D Brian Skull Murphy and more recently ex-Vic Poll member Paul Dale. We're sitting in what used to be Vicky's office on a very typical stormy Melbourne spring day outside. Hi Vicky, thanks very much for sitting with me on the crime couch today. Thank you for having me. What motivated you to start writing true crime? Oh, um, I think when you are a writer, you uh, it, it's really about finding something to write. I think you're a born writer. And I, I was wanted to write a book when I was five and probably more imagined that it would be something with a faraway tree or a wishing chair. But I think it is a matter of when you've got that writer's soul, you're looking for something to write. And originally I wanted to write crime fiction because I loved Agatha Christie. And then I realised that coming from a you know, Catholic family and Catholic girls' school and, you know, I got to my early 20s and realised I knew nothing about life and certainly nothing about crime. So I started to read true crime to find out, you know, criminal motivation and procedure and then just got totally hooked on that. So that's what I wanted to write. Was it always a choice for you to be an author or was there something else that got in the way? Look, I think I have always been an author. You you just, you have this weird, compelling desire to write, but it doesn't pay the bills. And so um, from high school, I did teacher's college and worked and have worked for 31 years as a, as a primary teacher and now a secondary teacher. How do you know, Vicky, when you come across a subject like, and you go, that's got to be my next book? Oh wow! I, I think it's a it's a sixth sense, isn't it? Um, I'll give you an example. I I get approached by a lot of people, and a book takes a year. So when someone gets in touch and says, "I had a really bad divorce, and my husband and my kids hate me, but if you wrote a book for me, my family would know the truth," and you go, "Okay, so no, that's not going to happen." But then you get someone you know, that comes along and an example was Rod Braybon. I wrote the book Salvation and he wrote to me and said I was a victim of the at the Bayswater Boys Home from the Salvation Army in the 1950s and when I spoke to him, my hook was this. He said, I ended up in Pentridge when I was 16 and he goes, and Pentridge was a bloody holiday camp compared to Bayswater and I was hooked. Because I had been to Pentridge, not as a prisoner, but um, my year 11 legal studies group went to Pentridge 
And we went on an excursion there to see a play and they let us talk to the prisoners after, which was a really bad idea because they became our pen pals and they told us how to rob banks. And if you rob a bank, you have to make sure that you steal two cars and park one around the corner. So we're these young Catholic schoolgirls going, whoa. Uh, I don't think we, any of us ended up robbing banks. But I had been to that place when it was an, an active prison and it was bleak and it was horrible and it was cold and it was dank. And I just thought, if this kid preferred Pentridge to Bayswater, there was a story there. And boy, was there a story there. Is there always a hook or or do you think it's just your intuition and instinct where you go, that's got to be a yarn, that's got to be a book? Yeah, that whole notion of yarn. I did a. Uh, I I didn't work for the Herald Sun, but I, I kind of hung out for a couple of shifts with police rounds way, way, way back when a lot of the um, older distinguished police reporters were kids and uh, drinking too much beer. And that one thing that I remember is that you'd walk into the office and someone would go, "What are you doing today?" And they'd say, "I'm doing, you know, covering the funeral of a boy that train surfed." And they go, good yarn, good yarn. And I, being a teacher, I'd never come across that notion of good yarn. And I guess that kind of stuck with me because you, you, you do look at these things, good yarn. And so I suppose as a writer, you're looking for saleability. Will this book sell? So the woman's divorce, no one's going to read it except for her and maybe her mum. But, um, you know, will someone read a book on the skull? Well, I guess you take a leap of faith because there already had been a book on the skull. But, you know, Brian said to me, he goes, look, I want to tell my story. And, um, and his story from his words was fascinating and, and it needed to be told. So one is time, timing. So if someone gets me, like if someone asked me to write a book today, I can't do it because I've got 37,000 projects and a PhD that I'm doing and my full-time job. But if they catch me in that rare window of about three days where I've finished one and I haven't quite decided on the next one and, and it's a good yarn, so there's this whole uh, chemical mix that comes together to go, that's the one. You've written about pedophiles. Uh, you've written about infamous police members. Are there any subjects that you go, I just won't touch? No. Um, I think when I wrote the book Rock Spider in, in 1999 with Chris O'Connor at the Child Exploitation Squad, uh, we knew that that book wouldn't sell widely because it was about pedophiles. But why it needed to be written was that we're going, th- if this is the, the head of the Child Exploitation Squad that says, of all of my vast experience, here's how they operate, then as a parent, as a teacher, you need to know this because here's how then to protect you know, you need to have the kryptonite, you need to have the antidote to how they might approach your children. And um, but, but, you know, I always operate. I have a full-time job, it pays the bill. So I always operate on the premise that if I am interested and if it can hold my attention for a year, I'm good to go. What's your favourite case, Vic, that you've written about? And tell me why. What makes it your favourite? Oh, Lord, it's like picking your favourite child. I've only got one, so I can't even have a favourite child. Uh, I think maybe the Phillip Island case and the Frankston case. So both of those, uh, Phillip Island, uh, the death of Beth Barnard in 1986 and the disappearance of Vivian Cameron, that was my very first book. So I was a very young, I think I was 25 when I started looking at that book. And... um, and I'm still writing about it. So it's it's just, it's longevity. It's never let me go. 
and I guess Frankston too, I still have these connections with the people involved, with the victims, and uh, my next podcast will be on that to really say, we need to keep this guy in jail. So I suppose those are the big ones that maybe I'm more well known for, but but they were big for me too. What's captured and held your attention with the Phillip Island case? Oh, that it's unsolved. And I think we have, when we look at that case, you have the murder of one woman and the disappearance of another, and you have this sense of justice hasn't been served, no one's been convicted, uh, Vivian Cameron has never been found. And I think you just look at these women and you just think, regardless of whether, whether Vivian did it or not, the fact that a woman could be pushed to that, I don't believe she did it, I don't believe the evidence uh, suggests that she did it, but the fact that she could be pushed and so alone and so distraught, I think we need our hearts need to go out to both. And I think when you get a case like this, you can so often have it's cut and dried and it's you know tied up neatly with a bow and these women can be forgotten. And I guess on the island, the case has never been open for discussion. So my books and my podcast allowed it to be a subject of discussion again because you can't put a lid on it. It doesn't matter. The family are, are powerful and well-known and well-connected and they didn't want it spoken about. But you can't. People have to talk about it because in the talking about it, you process it in anything. And um, that's what I love about true crime writing is that you process as you go along. And so that, that case too, I think we just want justice. We want a conclusion. I think one of the books that I've been really interested in reading of yours, and I know that people listening to the podcast will also be interested in is the book that you wrote with Paul Dale. Now, how did he approach you? Um, how did you get about to writing his book? Yeah, that was an interesting one because I'd never heard of him. And um, because I work full-time and, and doing a PhD and uh, and write full-time as well, like I don't have a lot of spare time. So I don't read The Herald Sun and I didn't, I didn't see all the front pages that he was on. And so when he, a friend of his got in touch with me and said, we're looking for a writer, uh, I had to Google who he was and I hadn't really heard of the Hodsons and I know I'm a crime writer, but the kind of crime that I write is very different to the organised crime. I don't, had never done the underbelly type stuff. I'd never done uh, it, that, that sort of drugs and, and uh, corruption and things like that. I'd always done really positive family-oriented or police-oriented stories and so he, um, you know, I had a, a conversation with him and I said, yeah, I'll take a look. So he arrived at my house and he had pretty much a ute full of boxes and he carried them upstairs and he goes, just, he goes, just read them all, see, see for yourself. And so once I started reading this, I thought, wow, uh, there is a lot here that is never, ever featured in the media. The media seem to pick things that, um, that, they, you know, that there was this, there was this narrative that they, um, they stuck to and other stuff was ignored. And he'd never told his story. And I think as a storyteller, you have to say, well, look, people deserve to tell their story. He's never been convicted of anything. Uh, he had, you know, the police had tried to get him. And I guess as a citizen, um, if you're going to get someone, you've got to get them fair and square. And that's our system. That's how our system works. And if you pay, um, 
when I say bribes, I don't mean bribes, but if you offer rewards to people and rewards are paid uh, in return for statements, we have to ask as a society how, um, you know, how, how much is the truth worth if Carl Williams is paid, you know, a quarter of a million dollars to make a statement? Like, it, it, what is it worth when Betty King talk, called him a liar and he could never be believed? And so I think that to me it was not... It was about Paul, of course, but it was more about this system where um, I just kept saying, you've got to get them fair and square, and if you can't, you can't get them. You know, we've all had convictions, uh, or sorry, we've all had not guilty verdicts that, you know, the, we've all grumbled and went, oh, I bet they did it. Uh, but but this is how the system works, and, and I think uh, someone set their sights on Paul and they... Uh, you know, that there was a lot of stuff that I think in hindsight shouldn't have been done. And once you cross that line, once you jump that shark, uh, then the whole community needs to say, oh, nah, can't do that. Because then you start to worry, what if they accuse me of doing something? And if they paid someone a nefarious character a quarter of a million dollars, uh, would, would I survive that? Uh, so I guess it, when you're a writer, you have to safeguard. And another thing... A journalist had written about Paul, uh, one of the stories that he told me, and again, this hook, and he said uh, this this journalist had written that Paul was in a, when he was in, I can't even remember the squad now, maybe the armed robbery squad, and they'd pulled up at traffic lights and he was taking a power nap while a well-known offender escaped. And Paul, when he read that, he goes, I was never in the armed robbery squad, and when that happened, I was 18. I was like, you know, burning shoe leather on as a beat cop. And and he, so he goes to his lawyer and he goes, this is wrong. This never happened. This is a lie. And his lawyer looked at him and he goes, you know what, Paul? You can only sue if it damages your reputation. And your reputation is so far down the toilet that it can't be damaged. And I thought, so here's this guy that even when people blatantly can write whatever they want to write about him and he's got no comeback. And so he'd never spoken and... Uh, so he said, all right, I said, now is your turn, but it has to be measured and it has to uh, be supported by evidence. And that's, you know, I guess what we tried to do in that book. What were the, the challenges that you encountered in writing Dale's book? Um, I, I think for the first time ever I was writing a book that questioned uh, the police and all of my books have been really supportive of the police but that doesn't mean that uh, the, the police as an institution is uh, is perfect. And I think we all have to take that step back and say, well, if this story needs to be told, uh, I'm going to try, try and help him tell it. Um, and I think because the police now from when I first went in as a writer and said, oh, you know, can you help? Can I write stories about you? And the police was pretty much open door. Yeah, come in. And I would always show them the stories. And so I was trusted because it's like I'm not writing anything that you don't approve of. So because I'll show you what you write and you tell me I don't want that. I'll change that. Sure. I want to tell your story. But I think over the years, the police, the, the doors closed. And as an example, you know, I tried to get an interview with a police for my next podcast. And after about maybe five or six weeks of backing and forwarding and filling out contracts and them wanting to listen to the entire podcast and asking questions that had nothing to do with, can I just talk to one of you guys about where this case is at at the moment? And in the end, I said to them, okay, um, I finished the podcast. Could you just, if I, if I write you a question, could you just give me a written answer? And I mean, it took, 
I think maybe five or six weeks to just get a, a written answer. And that that's what you're facing now. Mm. And I think the police need to, uh, if you want to close the doors to writers who really want to write positive police stories, uh, then we will stand outside the doors and we'll get our information uh, from other places. And it became so hard to access police that I moved away from writing police stories. Now I only interview retired officers and it just became too hard. And I wonder if that's the right move for them because I think I, 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 think I was able to tell some really good stories in that time. Um, like I wrote a book with the Dog Squad and Penguin had approached me and said, uh, hey, you know, do you want to write a book? We want to pitch it to the dog squad. You write it. You get half the royalties. They get half the royalties for their puppy breeding program. I'm like, oh, my God, puppies. Um, and so, you know, I spent about probably six months going back and forth and interviewing dog handlers and tried to interview the dogs. They were very tight-lipped. But um, <laughs> it was the most wonderful experience. And in the time it took me to write the book, that's how long the contract took. And in the end, the police hierarchy said, no, we can't possibly give money to the puppies. We'll just put it into consolidated revenue. And so the whole thing was like, dun, dun. you know, like, what? what? Why? <laughs> how? And so writers would go out and do these partnerships. Now, these stories were fully approved by the, I wasn't, you know, going out to go, whoa, is there scandal in the dog squad? They were just beautiful stories of these hero dogs and hero handlers and on full approval of all of the hierarchy had access to that book. They said what can go in, what can go out. And, um, and so this is brilliant. And yet at the end, at the pointy end of the paperwork people, <laughs> I don't know who they are, um, but, you know, it, it, the whole thing fell down. So I think there are opportunities for partnerships. Uh, why not? And even in podcasting, if my, my latest podcast has had, I think, nearly 2 million downloads, if I can go into the Victoria Police and say, I've got, I can get you 2 million downloads around the world for a case that's 30 years old that needs, you know, an injection of... Um, public interest, surely the Victoria Police would say, yay, and yet six weeks and I got, uh, you know, uh, two sentences from them. How important, Vic, is it to build the rapport between you and who you're writing about in a book? I think um, rapport is really important. And look, I'm not a journalist. I'm not a investigator I'm a teacher and so I guess my training was with little kids and I always say you know if you don't develop a rapport with little kids they start biting each other and you know so you you know it's tough training ground yes I know there are riot police that train with rioters but little kids are tough too and I, I think that that ability to engage and listen and that's what we do as writers. We sit and listen to story mm. and it's all about the story. So, But I've always, and I know that this isn't a journalistic practice, but again, teacher, um, I have always shown everything that I've written to the people that I've written it about and got their okay. So there's never, you know, I mean, we've all had this, we've all been interviewed and then you look, at, you, you wait for it to come out and there's this trepidation, what are they going to edit? What are they going to say about me? And so there's none of, there's never any of that in my work. It's always they know what's in it because they know because they okayed it. Good journos do give the coffee to the talent. 
but yeah, it's it's a definite something that's got to be done. When writing someone's story, Vic, you've got to be told the secrets. You've got to be told the things that often people don't want to speak about. How do you get someone to trust you? That's interesting because it takes a long, long time. So, uh, for example, when I was working with The Skull, I wanted to call the book Saturdays with The Skull um, because every Saturday I would go to his house and we would talk for two or three hours until both of us kind of got too stiff from sitting at the table and, um, and, and he would talk and I would type. And so it was, I don't know, months into, into that book where he looked at me one day and he said I was sexually abused as a child and I want to talk about it. And, uh, but, but that wasn't on the first session. Uh, and it was, you know, he, he talked about that and he said, I think on reflection that my story would help people because I want to tell uh, men out there. He goes, I can see it in men. I can see when I can see the signs that they've been victims. And he goes, I want to tell them it's not your fault. And it's like, this is gold. This is fantastic. Mm. Uh, but that did not happen, as I say, in the first session. That took months. What's been the most challenging book that you've written about and why? Oh boy, the, the Rock Spider, the, the one with the pedophiles. I think I've never been, I've never had nightmares. Uh, but that book, oh my God. Uh, like I didn't take material home, but I would go into the child exploitation squad and I would look at interviews with pedophiles and, uh, you know, they would show me how uh, child pornography is distributed and, and I, I saw small. Uh, aspects of it because you have to I think you can't I, I can't ever as a crime writer go in I can't look at that you know I have to I have to see it and and I guess maybe you take that revulsion and you take that those disturbing feelings and then that filters into your writing uh, but that book boy that was hard I bet it would have been extremely difficult um, so tell me when you're writing a manuscript how important is the research yeah, the research is vital. And now that I've started my PhD, well, not started, I've been doing it for four years, uh, that really has funneled in this evidence-based research, evidence-based research. And, and that as a writer really marries in with what I do because you can't say anything without um, supporting it. And and one of the locals from Phillip Island had told someone that I spoke to, uh, don't read Vicky's Phillip Island book. She just made it all up. And I, I said, oh, yeah, no, you can't do that. You know, everything that's in that book has to be supported with evidence. It has to be supported with interviews oh. and police statements and checking, I don't know, temperatures and uh, so. Well, also publishers legal every book before it's published, which is what not many people understand. Yeah. So they're like, oh, she just made it up. But it's their way of saying, well, we don't have to give that any weight. Uh, so she just made it up. But anyway, I think research is vital and you have to, everything that I write is supported with documentation as a crime writer. Uh, but then the historical stuff with, say, Brian, uh, a lot of it was just story. And then I would support it with as much research as I could. Uh, but And I did have a, the inquest brief from the, the Collingburn trial. Mm -hmm. but, um, but, you know, a lot of it, a lot of it is his memory and then me trying to Google dates and times and, yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, what about you? What? True crime authors, do you actually like? What do you read? Oh, Lord. Um, you know, I, I read a lot of crime fiction now. Um, I think sometimes you, it's a, maybe like cops not wanting to watch cop shows. Um, but I, I do love crime 
true crime when it's written beautifully and Helen Garner's This House of Grief. I mean, that's just uh, stunning work. And uh, I, I loved Rachel Brown's Trace, the book that went with the, the podcast. So I guess those are the kinds of true crime that I, uh, you know, at the moment I'm reading Gary Jubilin's I Catch Killers or... Uh, you know, things like that, but part of it is research. But I think for my time off, in my limited time, um, I, I sort of, I'm crime fiction. Is that bad? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I think that's legal. Um, if someone wants to write true crime, what do you recommend? Uh, get the documentation. See what you can get. So you can't write anything that hasn't gone to court, really, um, unless it's unsolved and it's historical. But just see what kind of access you have to the people that are involved and uh, see what kind of documents that you can get because you can't do it with nothing. Okay, so Vicky, finally, what's next for you? What's in the uh, just around the corner for you? Yeah, so I've been doing a lot of work with Casefile, uh, which is a huge internationally successful Australian podcast. And so uh, part of my my ongoing work will be helping out with scripts and podcast development and um, making my Frankston podcast and hopefully finishing my PhD. And so all of that's in the future. And I'm rewriting the Philip Island book. Uh, so I've, I've, uh, I'm in discussions with a, a, an agent in New York to get that book out into the world and to give it, uh, because there's worldwide interest in this case. So to give it you know, the the international chance that it deserves. Sounds like you've got a busy time ahead for you, Vic. Oh, yes. <laughs> well, look, thank you very much. It's been fabulous sitting with you on the Crime Couch today. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for joining me. I'm Rochelle Jackson, and I look forward to your company next time on the Crime Couch.